This week at AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we want to know, do you think it's ethical for journalists to use cell phone data in investigative reporting? Fill out our poll now at AveMariaRadio.net, scroll down on the homepage and click on Poll of the Week. Thanks very much, Steve. Always appreciate your news reports for us here on Crested in the Afternoon. I am Jerry Usher, in for Al Crested today. Dr. Matthew Bunsen is uh, the executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EWTN News and a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's the co-author, author or co-author, I should say, of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen. Register Radio, he also appears there. It airs Saturdays at 7 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. Matthew, good to have you back with us. How are you? Always good to be with you, Jerry. Likewise. Well, nothing much to talk about, so you've been watching the Olympics? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I have. But uh, (laughs) in fact, there's a beautiful little story about uh, the uh, gold medalist uh, who uh, just won and, of course, was uh, very much uh, willing to show her uh, faith and devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mother. Yeah, that was the uh, Filipino Filipino yes, swimmer. Yes, Hidalene yeah. Diaz. Yes, from the Philippines. Yeah. So one of those great stories, and, and uh, the Catholic News Agency uh, has a great little piece on her. And uh, of course, I think Simone Biles is Catholic, if I'm remembering right, and there are That's a few correct, others. Yeah. So. Katie Ledecky and many others. We could spend the whole uh, segment talking about all of that, but just very quickly, I'll let people know, actually, we do have a, a, a convert to the Catholic faith and a, a great Olympic champion in her own right. Dominique Dawes is going to join us at the end, the last segment of the program. So I hope people well, can there see you go. that. Yeah. But uh, Matthew, I want to start with, you know, responding to concerns raised by the Pope's motu proprio, uh, restricting the traditional Latin Mass. Some curious uh, responses coming out of French church authorities uh, seeking to basically, in many cases, reassure Catholics attached to that form of the liturgy. Well, that's right. Uh, If we look around the world and we consider the places where the traditional Latin Mass, the extraordinary form, has been most embraced uh, in the time, especially in the, the years after Pope Benedict XVI, Motu Propria Samorum Pontificum, really opened the floodgates for the expansion of the saying of the extraordinary form. A couple of countries emerged as sort of the main centers for this. One was the United States, another was Poland, but right in there is France. It has one of the largest populations of Catholics who go to uh, the traditional Latin Mass. I think the estimates are around 60,000 in the country, which by any stretch is a very sizable group. Now, you spread it out across the country. All of that uh, leads me then to what the French bishops essentially did in the immediate aftermath of the promulgation of the motu proprio by Pope Francis, through placing restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass, and that was that almost as a group, the French Catholic bishops spoke out and gave that sort of reassurance. Uh, to those who are adherents of the extraordinary form, that no, things are not going to be changing radically, and this was not some sort of declaration of war on the traditional Latin Mass. Right. Well, what, what do we take away from that, then, these reassurances in terms of, you know, the Pope has uh, this certain level of authority. What, what about a motu proprio, and is this something, you know, that, that a National Bishops' Conference can, can take it or leave it kind of thing? Yeah, what what was especially interesting about the decision uh, by the French bishops, sort of en masse and then as individual bishops, uh, was that uh, Pope Francis in this motu proprio did a couple of things. The first was to place restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass, but 
he also placed the majority of the authority for doing so, for overseeing the extraordinary form in the hands of diocesan bishops. So each bishop, basically, in his own diocese is going to be sort of the final arbiter of this, except in a few cases where consultation, as it was put, with the authorities in Rome, in particular the Congregation for Divine Worship, that will have to take place. But realistically, the diocesan bishop is the one who's going to decide this. So we're seeing sort of diocese after diocese sort of weighing in as to what they're going to do. We're seeing it here in the United States, and of course we're seeing it around the world, but we're seeing it particularly in France. And for those who don't know uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, um, an interesting phenomenon is that the, the, uh, the demographics of those who go to the traditional Latin Mass, um, they, they, they lean very strongly to the younger, younger demographics. <laughs> is that correct to say? Uh, it is. I mean, there's been a perception for a long time that uh, the followers or adherents of the extraordinary form uh, are aging, decrepit uh, people who simply refused or grew up in an, the era before the Second Vatican Council. Uh, in fact, I think uh, this has been proven that demographically, as you note, uh, there is a very sizable contingent. Uh, of Catholics who go to the Extraordinary Form, who are young, uh, who are married, they have uh, growing families. So it's really found a niche or an appeal uh, among younger Catholics who I think grew up at a time of a lot of uncertainty uh, with the liturgy. And, and this is no criticism of the Second Vatican Council by any means, or uh, the Novus Ordo. It's just that from time to time, uh, they have not seen particularly good liturgies uh, where they grew up in some of their parishes, or they're drawn to the continuity uh, that many of them see in the extraordinary form. Uh, with the, the, the liturgical life of the church, with the, the way that the Mass is said, the, the beauty of uh, some of the Masses. So there are different reasons why they're drawn to it. Uh, and it's an open question as to how many of them, if very few at all, are sort of rejecting the Second Vatican Council. But this goes back to the very question of why Pope Francis uh, issued the motu proprio to begin with, uh, because he was concerned, uh, as he states in the motu proprio, that uh, those who follow this are, can be a divisive element in a parish. Right, right. Well, you know, we could spend a lot more time on that, uh, Dr. Bunsen, but uh, a few other things we want to get into. One is uh, you and I were talking before coming on the air. Hard to believe it's been five years since the assassination of Father Jacques Hamel, if I said his name right, uh, the, uh, the French priest who was, who was murdered saying Mass. Um, can you give us just kind of the, the nutshell version of, of this story? Well, that's right. Uh, so we all remember uh, five years ago that uh, uh, in France, uh, a, an elderly priest by the name of Father Jacques Amel uh, was murdered, uh, almost decapitated by supporters of uh, ISIS uh, or the Islamic State. And the act itself was absolutely horrifying. Uh, because he was murdered during Mass on this day, uh, July 26th, on, on July 26, 2016, so it was just yesterday. And what was especially significant about it, I think, was that uh, he's been called the first martyr of the 21st century, uh, and it was a demonstration, I think, of the, the growing concern that uh, many people have uh, about attacks on the Christians, uh, attacks on the churches, uh, arsons, vandalism, and now this was a direct, brutal murder of a priest by Islamic extremists. 
And the other thing that almost happened immediately were calls for his canonization or calls for his uh, cause for uh, sainthood to be opened. And in fact, uh, in his diocese, Rouen, uh, the archdiocese established a sort of a very preliminary inquiry into his sainthood cause in 2016. But that, of course, traditionally you have to wait five years. Mm-hmm. Pope Francis waived the traditional five-year waiting period so that the, the process could begin. And it actually began officially in April of 2017. Now think of a few of the other people who had that waived. One was Pope John Paul II and the other was Mother Teresa. That was sort of the significance of Amel's murder and the way that those who knew him were genuinely convinced of his holiness beyond uh, the the fact of his martyrdom and the fact that he died uh, at the hands of those. He died in what is called odium fidei, or the hatred of the faith. That is beyond question. Uh, And now in this process, we're able to assess his life, uh, his writings, and his personal holiness. Is there where, where where does this cause stand right now? Do you know? Um. I do. Uh, so the the cause itself uh, proceeded on the diocesan level, which they all do. So essentially, he became almost immediately a servant of God, and that required, uh, as any diocesan investigation or any diocesan process, uh, a lot of uh, archives and interviews and transcriptions, and then also uh, two things have to happen in a cause, any cause like this. The, the first is uh, the, all of the writings and homilies and everything else have to be examined by a commission. So that's one side. Then the other is studying the life of the prospective saint. That's, uh, that itself has to be very grueling because you need to understand the context. In this case, we also need to understand all of the details and context of his death because it is likely that uh, he will be declared formally a martyr. Now, the, the cause itself uh, was closed, I think, in 2019, so that's almost two years ago. And then it is sent uh, to Rome, first for validation by the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, which is uh, it follows the norms, and the positio, or essentially the, the case is made uh, for his perfection of the virtues, but then we also need to certify, did he die a martyr? And if that's the case, then he moves, he could move very quickly uh, mm-hmm. to be declared a blessed as a martyr. Hmm. Well, we'll be keeping people abreast of that, and we certainly uh, uh, hope and pray that uh, he, he will be beatified one day if that is the will of God. Uh, we've got about, uh, oh gosh, two and a half minutes left. You know, people don't often think of the words Vatican and trial in the same breath, but <laughs> a big right. one got underway in Rome. What can you tell us about this? It did. Well, uh, the trial of Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who uh, was a cardinal, he was the sostituto or one of the key officials of the Vatican Secretary of State. So he had the start of his trial today uh, on major Vatican finance uh, charges. Uh, that's uh, charges that include embezzlement and abuse of office. Now, overlooked somewhat is the fact that he is only one of ten other defendants uh, that uh, are now going to trial in a sort of makeshift uh, courtroom in the Vatican museums because of the scale of the trial that's ahead of them. It is really one of the largest trials of financial crime, certainly in the modern era. I think you have to go all the way back to around 1732 or so. Uh, to find another cardinal who's been put on trial for similar financial accusations. All of this stems from a a variety of accusations of misuse of funds, uh, sort of going into what happened in London with the the loss, perhaps, of $100 million 
of money that was used to, to purchase a building in London. It, it gets extremely complicated and, and involves the jurisdictions and, and banks and other things of a number of different countries. But really what it comes down to is that uh, the cardinal who has been stressing his innocence throughout all of this is accused of not just mismanaging funds, but also of things like embezzlement and other financial scandals. Wow. Sounds like it's playing in theaters starting on uh, <laughs> Friday, right? <laughs> yes. And for those who wonder, uh, he has, in fact, uh, he resigned as prefect for the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, which is uh, obviously part of the overall punishment that he received for the loss of Pope Francis's trust when all of this began. And uh, he is also not eligible to participate in any sort of a conclave to elect mm. a new pope. Right. So we'll see. Well, good stuff. We could talk about so much more. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much for being on the program again with us here on Crest in the Afternoon. Great to be with you. God bless. You can follow Matthew Bunsen at Matt Bunsen on Twitter. You can hear him on Register Radio Saturdays at 7 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m.